This is Bonjour Chai, the Whole E Sheet Edition. I'm Avi Fongold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Montreal and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, it's a post-Tuba'av love fest. We speak to Joanna and Lane Halpern-Zisman, who founded Yenta Over the Rainbow, the world's first LGBTQIA dating site. And we hear from Frida Wiesel about what's really going on in the Hasidic bedroom. But first, Lana David, it's been a while. It's so great to have you guys back. We're the band back together again. All together. I forget what y'all look like. Oh, come now. Yeah. Come now, David. Come now. <laughs> come now. Is that a new expression? It's a very now. old expression, actually. It's, a, it's a line that Alana Zakon learned in her sex ed um, classes. <laughs> That's disgusting. Um, <laughs> I'm going to pretend I didn't um, hear that. <laughs> That's also what you said in your sex ed class. I think I blocked out a lot of my sex ed class. I was extremely uncomfortable around that topic as a child. <laughs> what was your sex ed class like? Yeah, what was it like, Alana? I don't remember that much, to be honest. I know that we had a class in grade five, and then we had a class like mid-high school. I remember like them teaching you how to put on a condom. And like I went to Ooh. like a, it was like a secular Jewish high school that had like, you know, orthodox ish uh, background i guess it, like herzliya in montreal so like the the you know there was like a like an orthodox bent to the teachings but like it was quite you know modern and i was the only religious one in my grade so it was a pretty standard sex ed class which i definitely didn't pay attention to that much at the time because the whole topic just kind of made me very squirmy <laughs> I'm I'm surprised you say it was pretty standard cuz i went to a jewish day school in montreal too and we never got the how to put a condom on Really? Um, really? So, like, Bialik. I remember. I am shocked. Bialik. You didn't yeah, learn any Yiddish? They were, afraid, <laughs> they were afraid that they might turn you guys gay. Well, and, uh... surprise, surprise. There we go with me. <laughs> I, 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 what I remember was having more about, like, friendships, relationships. Really? Advice. Never talk about. Never oh, ours talk was about. super clinical. It was, like, very no. much, like, this is all the things. And then, like, yeah, there wasn't much talk. From what I remember. I, I, like I said, I kind of blocked it out. It's true. You could have blocked out the whole other talks, but like we never got anything about STIs. We never got about the condom talks. Oh, we did. We, we never, did. We did. We we never talked about consent. We never talked about sexual intercourse. It's one thing to have sex ed, but um, what about like relationship ed? Um, that's something that's, it's hard to like learn from books, even good novels. And you, you can sometimes learn great things from how to be in a great relationship, but but that's about humans. Uh, did, did you guys have like relationship models? Did you guys learn? What, what was your like ways to move into that? And then like, what was dating like? Like is, I'm not an online dater. I never like, that wasn't part of my world. You're very um, lucky. And dating was also like in a, strange sort of weird you know transition period historically now in the same way that people get addicted to their phones for social media like dating apps are the same like you can end up getting hooked on a dating app just to like waste time in the same way that you might scroll instagram for three hours and then look out and realize that you got sucked into a hole um i feel like everyone that I know goes through phases where they just can't deal with the apps anymore. They delete them and they're like, I'm never doing this again, but then inevitably end up back on them because they want to meet someone. Um, I've kind of done all the different things. I was so close to actually signing up for a matchmaking site because I just didn't want to use the apps anymore. I was so tired of just, it felt like going on totally blind dates because you really know so little about the person from a, from an app. Um, but then I, I, I very luckily met my partner in person. Um, shockingly, so rare these days. Is that is it is it really so rare? Is that like the case? Unusual. It's so rare. 
Like we feel really proud that we can say we met in person because 99% of the people I know met through an app. Yeah, no, I remember it was it was a changing world for me too. I was obviously in the closet when I was in high school, but when I eventually came out in CGEP and and university, the apps I think were just getting off the ground at that point. So yeah, I was using apps to meet people. Um, it actually felt kind of liberating. It felt like the world was my oyster. And for the first time where you didn't know when you stepped into the real world, who might be gay and who wasn't, this was an option that you just said, everyone here on this app is the same like you. And then you could meet people across the city. I, I found it titillating and exciting. Yeah. Um, that sounds interesting. I, um, I kind of don't regret having missed that entire era of history. Avi, what other myths can we bust for you? Like, what is your perception of online dating and the modern dating? Uh, and then we can tell you if you're right or wrong. So what I'm curious about, and again, I grew up in a whole different era. Um, my perception of it was that Tinder and Grindr and all of these are really about sex and not nearly as much about relationships. But I also hear that this whole like world that uh, when I was in my 20s, let's say, or even in university, um, there was a lot of casual sex happening around me. Like, I mean, really a lot of casual sex. And I get that from what I hear, there is really not a lot of casual sex happening anymore. Um, and 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 maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Like, t like I don't know what's going. Alana's giving me these faces. You got to translate these faces for me. Tell me what. Like, I'm I'm happily married for 16 years. I don't know what goes on in the world except for what I read and like you know in these like opinion pieces from people who go and say there's not enough casual sex happening. There's too much casual sex happening. Grinder is bad. Tinder is bad. This is good. Uh, yeah. No, I, I'm just going to say that, you know, everyone says they hate the apps and everyone is on them at the same time, right? And I truly believe in my experience, while everyone says they just are here for the hookup, they're just for the one night stand, my experience is they say that, but they actually want to cuddle and they want to be connected with someone. And I think everyone is afraid to admit that because that's going to be seen as weak or you know, not just being casual and nothing really matters in the world. I truly believe that the majority of people on these apps want to feel a deep, meaningful connection. Yeah, I uh, I remember having a moment in uh, fairly far into uh, my marriage uh, when I had this moment. I never I didn't have this moment of regret, but it was like, oh, you don't get to go out and like hang out all the time and be at the clubs or be at the bars and meet people and think about what the future is. And then I was like, yeah, but you forget that, you know, 20 out of 21 days, right? Maybe one day every few weeks, right? You go home with somebody and not that I would or whatever, you meet somebody and, and the rest of those nights, you're home alone eating pizza from the fridge and wondering like why you aren't in a relationship. And it's only right. And so like, I was so much happier saying, you know what? I'm in a relationship. I'm happy. I, I may not be going out all the time. I'm going out a, a, a decent amount, but I know that at the end of the day, I don't have to sit there and wonder, right, who's my next relationship going to be? And then that's a great place to be. And I think that that speaks a lot to what you're saying, David, um, that people do want that, you know, want to connect on more than just a physical level. But um, clearly yeah. a lot of people do. But also don't knock alone at home pizza on a Friday night because that oh. is uh, amazing. Of Absolutely. I, 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 sure. Yes. So yeah. So we, I think we covered dating, we covered sex. Um, let's go hear from other people. Let's hear from our sponsor. And then right after that from Joanna and Lane from Yento over the rainbow. Today's 
Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom-designed jewelry along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit us online or in person and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. Until Joanna Halpern-Zisman created Yent Over the Rainbow in 2017, if you were queer and Jewish, you had to settle for plain old J-date or a queer dating site and hope you managed to find someone that was both, if that's what you wanted. But the world is now a better place now that she has started it and runs it along with her partner in life and business, Lainey. They join us from Toronto where they live with their baby. Joanna, Lainey, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. So can you start by telling us how the site works and how it's different uh, from other traditional dating sites? Absolutely. Basically, users sign up and then they get matches and the matches are made either by an algorithm, which just does it automatically on Sundays and Wednesdays or by a human matchmaker. And we usually have two matchmakers at a time, plus uh, me and Lane um, also act as matchmakers. Um, So it's a lot of fun. That way, everyone can get matches and value from the site. And at the same time, the matchmakers can make uh, thoughtful matches, speaking to clients, speaking to potential matches, and making pairs that make sense. What have you found has been more successful since you're working with two different formats, the matchmaker or the algorithm? It depends how you define success, I think. So the algorithm, it just does so many matches. Every Sunday and Wednesday, you get a new match. Um, That way you're continuously giving, you're giving each person a chance because you only get one at a time, but you're still, um, you're still getting a lot of matches. So just by numbers game, the algorithm, you're more likely to get someone faster or to get someone eventually. But the matchmaker helps you see past people you might not otherwise see and helps you feel when you speak to a matchmaker, you get to speak about what you're really looking for. And that helps evaluate, like, does that make sense to be looking for that? Is what I'm bringing to the table Um, maybe I'm not thinking of things that I'm bringing to the table that the matchmaker sees that are actually really important to me. And um, so that's how a matchmaker can make better matches and help people figure out what they really want while an algorithm isn't doing that. It's just giving you matches. One of the things that's really unique about the site is that you don't get to just scroll through all of the people that are on it, right? Like you don't just like log on and see all the profiles. You actually are just getting one profile at a time. And in that way, like you have like a chance to actually sit with it and think about it and read through what they're saying and also sort of reconsider what you're saying about yourself. And I think that does make it unique. And it is a little bit more like, um, working with a matchmaker, even when you have the algorithm, because you just get one person at a time to consider. And you're not just like flipping through quickly, you're actually taking time to sit with it and think about that person. Um, and one of the things like people can do is, you know, when they're starting to get their matches, and they see like, oh, this is not working for us, um, or not working for me, it's not what I want, they can go back and change their preferences and say, okay, like I'm seeing these people, but that's not what I want. I want to change the preferences. And then the algorithm will do that work to now find different matches. So if you're not getting matches or not getting the matches you want, you might change the distance at which people um, are being matched with. 
You might say, okay, I'm willing to travel a little bit farther. Or like my age range could be bigger. Or I said I wanted to someone who keeps kosher, but actually I want someone who doesn't keep kosher or who, who keeps Shabbos too, right? And you can make those changes whenever you want. And the other useful thing is that the matchmakers see the percentage match that the algorithm gives each person. And they can also see past matches. So um, the algorithm actually aids the person based on everyone's answers in bringing to the front what the algorithm would think were the top matches. And what made you want to set up this website in the first place? Yeah. Um, so it, I set it up. Um, it started out a lot smaller in, I forget if it was 2016 or 2017. I had recently come out. I was modern Orthodox um, and queer. <laughs> um at, um, I went on my first Eshel Shabbaton. So um, Yenta Over the Rainbow is partnered with Eshel, which is a wonderful organization that works mm-hmm. with Orthodox or for... We've had Steve Greenberg on here in the past. Oh, okay. No need to say that. Um, <laughs> um, so they're great. Um, so I was on an Eshel Shabbaton and all of us were talking about how hard it is to find queer Jews I was living in Montreal at the time, so it was extra hard. And um, we were just saying, like, it would be so nice if there was a space that encompassed both queer and Jewish identities, because the queer dating sites and queer spaces in general, um, they I don't know, they they don't ask anything about your Jewish identity and the Jewish part, the Jewish dating things, they don't, they didn't even ask about different genders. Like it was really bad. Um, they did ask, they had an other, it was like, I guess it depends which one, but like J swipe is what I was using at the time. And it was, um, male, female, or other, like there's a lot more than that. Um, and sexuality was same, same gender or different gender. Like, okay. (laughs) Um, It was hard. And so I I thought having a space that asks about all many different gender options, many different sexual attractions, because there's also asexual people or, or ace, or there's a, a huge range of different sexual identities and gender identities. And it was great. I wanted it, something that encompassed all of that, Plus um, Jewish values as well. So things for like, do you keep Shabbat at home only in my own way or not at all? Yeah, I don't think I I don't think you're going to find that question on Grinder anywhere if you keep Shabbat. Exactly. (laughs) I'm I'm actually super curious. I don't know if you're allowed to talk about this because it's confidential information. But like from your perspective. Having, I'm assuming, like I'm assuming you've seen kind of what people's preferences are. What do you find are the trends in terms of Jewish affiliation? Like, what is bringing people to your site? Is it more the culture, the religious aspect, or just like I want to please my parents? I think there's a pretty good mix of people. Yeah. Um, there's like people from a huge range. There's a lot of folks who are off the derech, who used to mm-hmm. observe Shabbat or used to keep kosher and don't anymore, but are still looking for a strong cultural um, Jewish presence. And then there are a lot of people who are also from, from or observant in their own way. Like I think for folks who are observant, there really isn't a space like this 
um, for folks who are observant, like there isn't a space where you can go and be open about your queer identity and be open about your Jewish identity. Because one of the things we find is that people feel the need to conceal their Jewishness in queer mm -hmm. spaces, just as much as people feel the need to conceal their queerness in Jewish spaces. So it goes both ways. People um, need a space to uh, have the complexity of their identity present. And I think one of the things about the site that's so wonderful is that you get to not only like find someone who might fit your criteria, but to feel validated that your criteria is can be met, right? Like that you get a chance to express yourself. I think just like by virtue of filling out the profile and the preferences, people feel a sense of belonging that they don't get from other sites. If you go on JDate and you're writing in other, like you're not feeling like you're part of a community. But if you're going on this site and you get to select that you're looking for friendship or looking for a long-term relationship, or you're like 75 and have never dated someone of the same gender before. Like a lot of people on the site are also older. Mm -hmm. So like there's a fact that people can come and find a space of belonging that makes them feel like their identity matters. I think that's a huge part of the site, whether or not you find a match. And I'll add there are people on the site that are um, that are orthodox, some in the closet, some not in the closet, Hasidic we get. Um, and also there's people on the site um, looking for like men looking for women or women looking for men that don't want a sexual relationship. They just want a partnership so that they can stay in their communities without having to come out at all. Um, so that exists too. Like we have a whole range and anyone is welcome to the site. I'm curious. I come from the the pre-internet um, dating world, right? I'm I'm old. Um, when I was around, I mean, date, dating online was starting to happen. It was at the point where it was starting to be. It was free because they were just trying to get everybody, you know, on the sites and all that. And I remember writing an article um, because you know, for a brief minute, I, I had a profile up or whatever, and I never really met anybody. It wasn't it wasn't a thing. It was also considered really uncool right, to, to date somebody online, right, way, way back in the early days of the internet. Um, but I remember reading, uh, writing an article because somebody uh, asked me to for their Jewish dating site startup that didn't end up going anywhere. Um, and I said, you have to get beyond the, uh, when you're writing your profile, you have to get beyond the, what I call the CFI, cute, you're looking for somebody who's cute, funny, and intelligent. I was like, everybody wants, you know, everybody is equally happy at home uh, as they are out at the club and want, enjoys long walks on the beach. That's everybody, like find the things that are uniquely you. Um, and it sounds like what you're trying to do here by blending the idea of an algorithm and um, and a matchmaker and not be relying exclusively on matchmakers like uh, what's that site saw you at Sinai or relying exclusively on an algorithm like all virtually, I think, every other site. Um, you're trying to say science or algorithms can help, you know, gauge your thinking. But we want you to we want that personality out there. Why do you think that hasn't expanded out to the general dating world and we rely so much not we right not me um on i'm done i'm 16 years in um very happy um with like why hasn't that gone beyond to where the like the, the rest of the world says maybe we do need to have a human element if you're going to meet people um which is how it worked for thousands of years and then for 10 years we decided hey uh no the only thing that's going to put you together is a is a like a computer i think one of the best things about 
Dance Over the Rainbow is that it's small and like we really pride ourselves on being about community and like a small community. So when you email like contact at Yance Over the Rainbow, like you're emailing us, like that's who's going to respond, right? (laughs) So what's nice about that is that like you can have that close partnership, but other sites are too big and profit driven. And we are, we don't make a profit. This is Joanna's like love project, um, like literally passion project, (laughs) but like it really is about, about community. Um, it's not about money. And I think that is the biggest difference because if it was about money, we'd be trying to make the most matches, to make the most money, to make the most marketing, whatever. And that's not what this is about. It's about helping people find their share or find whatever they're looking for. So I think in that way, other people haven't caught on because they have different priorities and our priorities are really about the people. Um, One of the things we also talk to people a lot about is like this site might not yet have your partner because it's, it's has like 2000 users. Um, People have signed, 2000 people have signed up, but that's, you know, big picture, not that many people. So people are constantly signing up. You might, your person might not be there yet, but that doesn't mean that there isn't um, something for you to do on the site. One of the things we talk about a lot is communication, like having your working on yourself and your own communication skills, working on your own ability to prepare for a relationship. So sometimes our matchmakers, when they're talking to folks, it's not just about like, who are you looking for, but also like, how can you, what are you looking for for yourself? Like what, what kind of um, improvements or uh, development are you looking for as a person that will prepare you for a long-term relationship? And speaking of size and money, um, next month in September, Tinder is turning 10 years old. And I, I'm just curious, you mentioned lots has changed in the dating world since then and since Avi was was out on the prowl. And I'm just wondering, you know, you mentioned you have 2,000 users now, but what happens when things- for the record- I was never out on the prowl. <laughs> I was not the Avi Feingold mode ever. I, I'm curious what happens when your users, if and when your users expand from 2,000 to 10,000, is it just going to be a small shop between both of you? Or are you going to have to bring in new matchmakers and scale up the way Tinder has been scaled up? So we'll never scale up the way Tinder has been scaled up. The The queer Jewish single looking to find someone population I've run the numbers. It is not that huge. Um, I, I didn't even estimate. have to run the numbers to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> and English speaking also. Um, it, it's really like the most, like a rough, a conservative ep- uh, estimate that I made ten, a few years ago was like 30,000 people. Can we get the Orthodox so, estimate and the Reform estimate too? <laughs> It's a bad joke. Oh, that was good. That was good. Um, um, it's a small community. It's a small community. So let's say we get 1%. That's 3,000 people. Let's say we get 10%. Oh, 10% is 3,000. It's small. <laughs> is the point and we can always we we could always hire more matchmakers we can always change we just we need it to be sustainable we're not looking to make money we're looking to keep it going so if we need to charge or get donations we'll figure it out we'll figure it out as we go uh, so that it keeps going with matchmakers um yeah we might bring on more matchmakers in the future that's definitely possible um and i don't think that that would make it a a bigger establishment um i don't think that would make it less intimate that would just mean more people are able to talk to our matchmakers 
Um, all of our matchmakers that we hire tend to have different backgrounds, but they generally share some kind of um, education or experience in the field of mental health. And that's something that's really important to us, that they have training and active listening, that they have training for in terms of trauma. We try to take um, a, a trauma-informed approach so that we recognize um, that everyone's coming to the table with different kinds of experiences when they're looking for a relationship. And really like this site could be used for a short-term relationship or just for friendship. But we try to keep in mind that everyone's coming to the site with their own histories that are going to impact their ability to communicate and to grow a foundation for a relationship. So really, we want to help people in that endeavor, not just like send them an algorithm. We also want to be there to talk if they're looking for someone to talk to. And also one of the things, oh, sorry. One of the things with the site is that as soon as you make a profile, the first match that's made is with Joanna so that you automatically have an ability to message directly with Joanna as soon as you join the site so that it feels like not like you have to go and find an email address. Like you can just log on and message. Um, and that's like a really easy way to start up communication if you have questions or um, something's not working for you on the website or just want to say hello. So you're the mat. You're the mat from fate. You're the mat from MySpace, right? Of of <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, Matt, this is really making me feel old now. Um, I want to go back to the point that you brought up about how small the pool is, because we're not even talking about small, just in terms of queer community, but in terms of Jewish options in general, whether straight or uh, queer. So. What do you, what have you observed looking at dating right now in the world that we live in? Because you look at these other apps like Tinder or Bumble or whatever you use, and there's just a plethora of people out there who are not Jewish. And I know when I was living in Vancouver for five years, it was a very small pool of people that put Jewish on their profile. In fact, sometimes I would find people that ended up being Jewish but hadn't put it on because they were just so unaffiliated that they didn't even want to put it as a known thing. So do you, are you observing that a lot of people um, are feeling kind of like they have to maybe give up on what their ideals are? And how do we kind of address that issue? I mean, you're already starting it with creating a website like this, but when people are like, oh, I've been looking and looking and looking and it's been months and I still haven't found my person because there's just not enough options, then what? Yeah, um, that is a huge problem. Uh, and that's, it's really hard. Um, from my experience, one of the reasons I moved to Toronto was because there were more options to meet people in the queer Jewish community. And I met Lane right away, so that worked out well. <laughs> um, but it, it's a hard problem because not everyone is able to pick up and move. And you might start dating long distance, and then you get to a point that you have to make a decision. And it's just about really evaluating what values really matter, what things you can make work and what things are beyond making work, making it work. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a lot about your priorities and recognizing like for yourself and being honest about that. If you really don't want to move, then don't make, don't be flexible, yeah. right? Like that is your priority. Um, but I think that is one of the things that we see on the site is that for some folks, like when, when they're not getting the matches they want or they're not getting enough matches, the first thing we look at is the distance that they're willing to, to match with, because that's usually the thing that's creating the most limitations. If you, 
um, only want to, you know, date someone who's right next door and you don't live in an urban city center, it's a lot harder to find other queer Jewish people. And I think also recognizing that like the site can do a lot, but it can only do so much. So also recognizing that there's a lot of community groups for, for queer, queer people and for Jewish people and for queer Jewish people that you can reach out to like Eshel and like other organizations, synagogues, um, a lot of like community groups and also just like neighborhood groups have different act Moisha houses, like people have yeah. activities going on. So reaching out to those and seeing what, what they have and meeting people in person so that you're getting that whole range, right? Like we don't want to tell people you have to come to our site. This is the only place to meet people. There's lots of opportunities to meet people if you're open to it um, and just making yourself open to those things by going to those events or, or researching those events, I think is one step to, to open up the opportunities to meet people. Right before we go, uh, you must have a, a success story without naming names or anything like that. Any really out there, the story that like really defines and encapsulates what Yanto Over the Rainbow is about. Uh, any, any you want to share? Yeah, we know it's led to a few successful relationships. One of the things that we find is that when they're successful, they tend to leave the site really quickly. So we don't, we can't like see who's in a relationship because they've left the site, right? Like it's really hard to keep communication going once there is a success because they're no longer looking. Um, but we have heard from folks who um, have gotten married. We've heard from folks who are in relationships. Um, and we've heard from folks who have had really wonderful long distance relationships and have thanked us for the site. But then because of the distance, they let us know that like it didn't work out, but they were still really happy they had met the person. Do you have any stats or tracking uh, about people after their first few dates with you? Do you, do you know if the, a, lot of, uh, a lot of your stuff and your website has led to a successful relationship? I mean, I can share our story, which I think is a great one, which is that um, I was looking for queer Jewish people and I came upon the website before it had even launched. And um, it was called a different name at the time. And they were looking for beta users. Um, and that was like really exciting. And I like wanted to send an email and I got too nervous and I didn't send it. But then I did end up meeting Joanna, the creator of the site. Um, so that was a, a really exciting thing to be like, what? wow, like this was the site that I needed at the time. Um, and and then I found the person who created it. <laughs> well, thankfully, Joanna, who uh, didn't just start the site so that she could find somebody and then drop the whole site and made it and shut it down as soon as she did. Um, and so uh, thankfully that it still exists and it's still doing great work um, within the Jewish community. Joanna Lane, thank you uh, for coming on to Bonjour Chai. Uh, you can find a link to Yent Over the Rainbow in our show notes. You can email them to uh, join or to send them money uh, so that we can have many, many more um, years of Yent Over the Rainbow. Uh, and you can email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca to let us know what you thought. By now, I feel if you're remotely Jewish and literate, you had to have read at least three memoirs from an ex-Chassid, watched Stissel and those other shows, and have strong opinions about Hasidim and sex on top of all of that. But several months ago, Frida Wiesel posted an actual transcript of a Chatan, a groom, getting the talk from his teacher, and as a result gave us a much clearer idea of what sex and relationships are actually like in the Hasidic world. Frida is a New York City tour guide who specializes in the Hasidic neighborhoods of Williamsburg and Borough Park. Despite being a former Satmar Chassid herself, she says that her tours and writing are designed not to denigrate, but rather shine a light on a different culture. Frida, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Oh, thank you for having me. Can you... Uh, 
start by um, just telling us um, the process of how this came to be. I know that the tape was on your site for a while in the original in Yiddish, um, but then you decided to go forward and transcribe it, and it's been re- receiving a lot of attention. Yeah, well, originally this recording, which um, is someone's, as you said, someone's lesson of being introduced to the birds and the bees before getting married in a Hasidic Uh, marriage, which means that essentially just a couple days before the wedding, the groom is being told about sex. This is something that this recording in particular circulated a couple of years ago in Hasidic WhatsApp. And a bunch of people I knew saw it, heard it, and um, it was very intense conversation, as you can imagine. It was like 30 minutes of covering a lot of very intense uh, revelations, as well as trying to frame all of that in a way that hopefully will get the couple off to a good start in their marriage. And I think um, for most people who'd been through that, which is where it circulated, it was very shocking to, to hear it because we all have these memories of it, but you know how memories are. It's never quite the way it was. And it was very interesting to read and be brought back to, to it. But I also found it as someone who grew up in the city community and went through something very similar. I found it to be a little traumatizing and I didn't listen to it in full, but I found it to be such a unique relic of Hasidic culture, something that we all want to be a fly in the wall of and we want to record, but never gets to be recorded that I saved it and I put it away. And Um, A few months ago, I thought to myself, you know, this is something so beautiful. I really want to do more with it. I I want to try to do a creative project around it. And I decided the first thing I'll do is I'll I'll translate it and and transcribe it. And in the process, I thought I'm making it available for the larger world. I really should give the groom anonymity. So I removed the original recording, which I still have, but I removed it. And um, I removed some of the personal information. You mentioned that it was um, somewhat traumatizing for you to kind of relive as you were hearing this transcription. If you're comfortable sharing, I'm curious to hear more about that. And now that you're not in that world, maybe what you would wish would be done differently in this kind of talk, if at all. If at all. (laughs) That's a good question, Alana. Um, I think ultimately this kind of talk will be very awkward. I think inevitably my memories of those moments is all of these intense feelings. You know, we have these few moments in life when so much is happening. There there are these transformative moments in our lives when everything is on the brink of change, like marriage, like having a first child, especially, but um, these, these major life moments when everything feels so intense. I remember feeling almost vertigo as I left the bride teacher's house even though I knew about sex, you know, we, there was a whisper network and word got around. I wasn't clueless. And yet the entire talk made me feel like I was in some kind of unreal world. And I don't know if it could have been done really differently. As long as you get married in this um, process, I think it's going to be a very, very intense emotional experience that for some people might be, um, it, it might be difficult in a way that, that leaves them with scars for other people. It might just be the necessary steps. And it's not um, going to be like this shock. You know, some, some people find out about sex a couple of days before the wedding. It could be quite a revelation. Um, I don't know how these things could be different. 
I'm not in the business of improving the Hasidic community, so I, I don't make any recommendations. But I think, um, Alana, to your question of it being traumatizing, I don't think it's necessarily as much traumatizing because of the lesson itself, but also because it t- takes you back to the actual experience of getting married in an arranged marriage. Um, if, if you want, I can read to you a bit from it. Would you be up for that? So, um, and this is, this is like the wedding night. He's walk the groom teacher is walking the groom through the wedding night. They have a one-on-one session and only at the very end is it explicitly about sex. Um, but he talks about the chuppah, right? How the chuppah proceeds. And then he says, you take right after the chuppah is done, you take your bride with a right hand. And he literally says, this is your right hand. Yes. You walk into the yichud room, the private couple's room, and as soon as you arrive in the room, lock the door. And the groom teacher asks, what's your bride's name? So the groom, a shy groom, says, Libby. Libby? Very good name. You say to Libby, mazel tov, Libby, shaking her hand with both of yours, okay? Tell her mazel tov, warmly tell her, repeat with me. May God bless us with a good marriage, that we should have a good home, that we should always be healthy and always have a happy marriage, and so on and so on and so on. As soon as you finish with amen, let go of her hand, embrace her. Give her a good kiss here and here on the cheek, not on the mouth, okay? And as soon as you're done kissing her, you let go of her and you say, wow, Libby, your gown is beautiful. It came out so gorgeous. It came out stunning. Very, very nice. Fine? Fine. Tell her I have something for you. And it was on and on. So while there's a kiss there, there's what I take away from it is this awkward, sweet, naive, and painful moment of two people who don't know each other being told to follow a script in order to show affection and bumbling through that. Well, I was just going to say, when I was reading the transcripts on the article, I was actually surprised and shocked that so much was spent on discussing the relationship and making sure both people in the, in both of the, uh, both people were comfortable with each other before it actually got to any of the sexual instructions. And, and I guess what I'm curious about is what is actually happening in the Orthodox communities. I, I have little concept of it. I, I, I view it more rather as an alien world. I want to know, you know, is is it as sexually repre- repressed as shows like Orthodox Unorthodox have led us to believe, or is it more sex positive? You know, I was always told that it was like a mitzvah to please your partner. So I'm just curious what what this world is is really like. Yeah, that I think that's what made me feel so strongly about this this transcript, David, because I think it challenged me even to, to rethink what is happening in this community. I do, I do think there's not much about sex that's happening here. He, she's not even getting kissed on the lips, right? She's, she's just getting kissed on the cheek. Is that erotic even? I don't know. Is it? But I think, yeah, I, I think we, I wonder if you guys saw it as erotic. I was, look, I was, I grew up in a in a in a yeshiva. Uh, I'm I'm still Orthodox. Um, I, I guess people would call me monorthodox. I, I, I don't want to get into definitions. I was expecting right the sex part right to be exactly the way it was because I'd heard from a lot of people. I didn't have Hasidish friends, um, but I, I I have a Hasidish acquaintances now, and we can talk and we can go open. The thing that shocked me the most, and this was where, and I know that you don't like to critique the Hasidish community. I don't either, and I think that there's a lot of uh, value in saying 
let them live their life and let them be like this. Um, the problem that I had was we have to teach somebody how to be nice. We have to teach somebody how to compliment somebody, right? That means that you don't have a lot of human interactions. The only interactions you have are with your chavruta, right? Your study partner and maybe the guy in the store and you're not doing anything else. And, and if we have to teach you basic human decency, then there's something wrong with the way society is built that even if you're, you've never talked to a woman, you should know how to be nice to somebody. And that that was the part I was like, oh my God. So in a half an hour, we're not just going to teach you about sex, but we're going to teach you about manners. Right. And that was the hard part for me. I just want to jump in and share a thought that that just came to me as I was um, looking through the transcript is when you think about it in the secular world, people have a, a model and often that model is actually quite toxic. A lot of people might get their ideas of what sexuality is from watching porn, for example, or watching movies where they idealize the way that sex should look like or a romantic relationship should look like. And if you grow up in, in a religious community where you're not allowed to watch anything like that, then there is really no, no model. So I, it actually makes me wonder, like, what, what is their conception of it like? Because there's nothing to relate it to. And maybe it's more pure, but maybe it's more animalistic. And the truth is that in the secular world, a, a lot of work needs to be done to teach people how to ask for consent. And we see that especially recently with the Me Too movement. And so I think there is actually value in talking about general manners in both the secular and the religious world. But I think what kind of took me out of uh, feeling, I guess, <laughs> warm and fuzzy while reading the transcription is more that it was so prescribed. And that was the part that I was like, I hope that the person's not going to go and repeat it exactly in this way, but actually feel it authentically. And if they don't want to say some of those things and they don't want to do some of those things, that they don't do it. And it reminded me, and I hate that this is what came to my head, but of the scene in Unorthodox where you can tell that the lead character is so uncomfortable and the way that the husband's treating her is, is very prescribed. Um, I know that that show is, is not, you know, the best depiction, but um, I would love to... I at least hope that some people are just letting themselves discover as they go, because in the secular world, you don't get a talk like that. Nobody says, okay, now you do this. Now you do that. That's not what sex education looks like in school. It's all scientific for the most part, you know? Yeah, I, I hear you. I think, I think there are two things we're talking about. There's the sex, the, the exploring sex, and there's the exploring relationships, both of which is bundled into 30 minutes. And I, how, how connected are they? Um, it's such a good question because in the secular world, I think we, we compartmentalize the two. You know, we say our relationships is, obviously said, manners, essentially. And then there's the whole sex, what sex is supposed to be. And it is so interesting to hear different reactions because, um, the woman that I work with who helps me run my blog, she, her first reaction to reading it was like, there's no female pleasure in this. This this guy just has is not taught at all about the female. And I was shocked. I, I was completely surprised that anyone would even expect there to be female pleasure in um, something like this. I, I, I think I, I just, yeah. I, and again, I want, I, I guess my critique is, is that for 2000 years, we've kind of figured out how to have uh, a community without having to teach 20 year olds how to have manners, right? How to have decency. And, and now all of a sudden we find ourselves because Hasidism, right, has become so concretized 
and also so enforced, right? Remember that 200 years ago when, or 300 years ago when Hasidut started, it wasn't necessarily something that you impose on your family. It was something that you choose to do. In fact, um, and, and this is a, a big takeaway that, that I think a lot of people don't realize, is that there were only male Hasidim. Right, because women were not considered, even the the wives of these Hasidim who had a rebbe were not considered Hasidim because they didn't have their rebbe, they didn't choose, and they were they were being married into these, and so they weren't necessarily automatically into it. And now we have these communities where you're born into it, and you're being told this is the only way that you can be Jewish, and the only way you can be Jewish is you study for twenty years until you're twenty, then you get married, then we teach you in thirty minutes how to have a relationship, and then you continue and you move on, and that that is not right, the prescription for leading a good Jewish life, and yet we're imposing it on everybody who are not necessarily choosing it. And that once it's become concretized, then we go and say, well, then nobody has this. Nobody gets to decide how um, how you have a sex life. You get told and that this is it. And that's not the, you know, that's not historically the way things were. That's not, I think, the way the Baal Shem Tov, who founded Hasidim, wanted things to be. And I think that it's just because we have this community and the community has become the religion itself, right? It's the perpetuation of the community and the community norms, and that that's the only critique that I have. If you want to live your life as a chassid and follow the Satmar Rebbe, whichever one that you choose, or if you want to choose the Rebetzin and be one of the, you know, the, that community, that's fine too. That's okay, but choose it and be part of it and don't um, have this world where um, sex becomes something that you learn for so briefly because you didn't have a choice, because you were born into it, and nobody goes and says there are other ways to be a good firm Jew. So your your main criticism is a lack of choice. So the opt in feature isn't available. Is is that what you're saying? Well, it, it's part of it, but I'm saying that the upshot of that is that we end up enforcing norms through generations, and each generation becomes stricter and stricter and stricter. If you listen to, like, for example, Chokmat Nashim, which is in Israel right now, and they point out that even in the yeshiva communities, you don't have pictures of women, whereas we have pictures of the Satmar Rebetzin, right? And the Satmar Rebetzin wasn't necessarily wearing skirts that were up to, you know, four inches below her knee, and we have these photographs, but yet now we're a new generation, and we're not, we're, we have to be more religious, we have to be more religious, and this is what happened. I can assure you that 75 years ago, this kind of talk wasn't happening with grooms. Yeah, well... I- I don't know about 75 years ago. Yeah, I suppose. I'm, I'm sure they did it differently. And I, I wonder- What do you think, Frida, are the, are the differences between what women are told and what men are told? Well, I think most importantly, whatever this guy is being told about being as sweet to his his woman as possible. And, and yes, to the point that it's saccharine and it's excessive. And, and Avi, by the way, um, to your earlier point, when I was when I first got married- in the Hasidic community, my husband did that to me. He would, as if he was following a script, compliment me off the moon. And sometimes it felt like he was just saying the same compliment as if like I was wearing the same thing. And he would be like, oh my God, this dress is beautiful. And be like, you said yesterday. <laughs> and so there was like a leak in the matrix, which made it even more uncomfortable. Uh, and I didn't like it. I didn't like, I found it very awkward. Um, but I think, I think it has utility. I think it has utility because if the guy tries really hard and the woman tries really hard, um, which is essentially what the woman is taught, you be very sweet to him. Um, and and there were there was for me an element in the lessons of put on perfume, which I thought was very modern, like 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 you can indulge in feeling nice. That's how I heard it. It wasn't like do it for him. It was like this is a time you can feel sexy. Uh, like putting on perfume was that I remember I told 
like the bride teacher told my mother to get me a perfume, uh, which I thought was very transgressive for my family standards. <laughs> I got married with a with a JLo perfume, which if anyone brings near me will like reignite a whole <laughs> period of my life. <laughs> so please don't. Um, but but I was also taught that this is what I remember being taught about female pleasure that if you have if you if you satisfy him and the shechina comes down I don't know if you know this and I don't know if it's in the transcript but I was taught that the shechina comes down when a couple has sex so God God joins the couple essentially and hovers over them meaning he he, he fills the home with his presence um, and and the teacher said to me at that moment you feel pleasure you know when when the when the bond is complete and it's done in a Jewish way and it's done in a proper way so that God himself descends, then, then you, you feel pleasure. I don't know if mechanically it's how it works, but. Well, it sounds like it's a threesome, to be honest. (laughs) It's a little creepy, I know. (laughs) So I, I am curious in terms of sexual education, what is happening in the Orthodox community or in the school system or anything like that? Is it, is it generally more father to son, mother to daughter, peer to peer, or, or even online? What are what are these kids, teenagers, sort of seeking, and what are they accessing? What is available to them to know a bit more about sexual identity, sexual intercourse? Is there anything happening, or is it all really kept right up till the the wedding day? I think uh, that's a very good question. I think it depends who. It is. Some kids are very, very naive and won't look outside of what's permitted and they won't know. I was dying to know from as soon as I figured out there was something mysterious about pregnancies, that the babies weren't just delivered to the hospitals and we weren't told. And I was in the in I was the kind of kid that was always looking for someone to tell me, you know, what can you what do you know about what actually happens? And there's a lot of rumor and incorrect information floating around. Um, about how it happens, a, very, a lot of confusion. There's a tremendous amount of confusion in that rumor mill, but I had a sense that there was stuff going on with forbidden body parts. Um, and there are a lot of people who don't know. I think there are also parents, I think especially the current generation, parents might be more, um, especially more open-minded parents might make an effort to speak to their children. My parents wouldn't speak. It would be a very awkward conversation. My friends and myself, our parents did not touch the topic. They sent us off to a bride teacher who told us everything. And then we came home from the bride lessons and there was no talk about it. You know, there was like, absolutely didn't happen. Um, it's it's awkward. Which which sounds a little bit traumatizing in a case where you couldn't talk to your parents about it, but you were instructed by a, a teacher and nothing could be spoken of at home or any follow-up questions. Well, you speak to your friends about it, really. You know, the, the Hasidic community, especially at the time I grew up in a very old school where the parents are not your friends. You don't, you don't talk about intimate stuff with your parents. You talk to your friends, maybe your sisters. But you don't. Like when my mother came to shave my head the morning after my wedding, it was also like a, a well check. Like she came to prepare my head covering, but it was also an opportunity for her to sort of make sure everything is okay. And I remember just thinking, oh my God, do not ask any questions or I'll die. That would be so awkward. I, I don't think I wanted, and I think this is common. You don't have the yeah, kind of I don't think that's just in the firm world. <laughs> yeah, I imagine <laughs> 
these conversations are awkward. Although, I don't know. I mean, I think that historically, you know, you didn't have anybody else but your parents and, and your peers to go and talk to this stuff about. There were no, there was no internet. There was no, not even libraries. So if you had questions about things, you had to go to somebody that you knew and trusted. And presumably parents were, there was no, not nearly as much shame around this um, as there, as there is now. And I think that that's part of where um, a lot of the difficulty that I'm having lies in that, you know, uh, if I can bring in another, an article that you wrote that I, that I read in, um, I'm trying to remember the book, it's about uh, artifacts of, of Orthodox childhoods. Um, do you remember, I don't know if you remember the title, Fried. Um and, and you talk about how in the Hasidic coloring books, there's this complete lack of historical like accuracy and, and, and a mixing up of history and, you know, Moses wears a strimal and, uh, you know, and, and all of this, which doesn't exist. And that's what's going on in this as well, is that this is a lived experience of saying, we have this artificial construct and we want to think that this is the way it always was. And it really hasn't been, right? We weren't always going off to a kala teacher or a, or a groom teacher, a khatan teacher to, uh, to, to learn about this stuff. We weren't always learning about it the day before the wedding. And yet now we are at the point where we want to compartmentalize. We don't want to think about it. We have shame because of when we had that experience. And so therefore we're going to pass it along to our children by, giving, by, by perpetuating that. Um, and that the system is bigger than the truth that, that, that is clearly real to these people. Um, but that's, again, that's my only critique about this, is that, again... I, I hear you. I mean, your critique, I, I'm not... I don't have a problem with critique. I love hearing different takes. I, I love hearing different places you all come from, because that's what I find so compelling about this. I wanted to ask um, one last question. Um, having now left the community, what are the positive things that you feel you can take um, from the lessons that you learned on on relationships or or sex or dating? Um, you you mentioned earlier that you found it very sweet, but are there any other takeaways that, despite uh, feeling that maybe there was you know a different lifestyle that you wanted, that you can still take um, some lessons that you think are worth shining a light on? <sighs> No, not really, to be honest. Uh, I think <laughs> once you're not living in that world and you don't have that incredible innocence, forget it. None of this works. I mean, if you're not innocent and if a guy comes up to me and says, oh, my God, your dress is gorgeous. And he's not completely naive at 18 and fumbling and trying so hard. And I'd be like, get the heck out of here. I mean, this artificial nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> I uh, I think that we need to be creating the uh, the joy of sex, but for for Hasidic singles and putting up pamphlets by the thousands and dropping them over like Curious Yol and Williamsburg, because as much as then they'll try to hide the information, the information will get out and and just sort of give people like a basic, you know, maybe this is a project for footsteps, you know, create neutral basic information for everybody to get out there, so that uh, there's less shame around there and and. Uh, Create, create the start the conversations going artificially. I don't know. I think people figure out. I, I don't. I'm not a big believer in in forcing pleasure and good things on people. I think a lot of people figure it out. I think my my bigger concern is if you're if a couple is not compatible, then whatever you're being taught, you can be taught from here to the other end of the world. I don't think the joy of sex is gonna is gonna reach yeah where I, it needs to I, go. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. And that's a whole other conversation 
um, beyond and the relationships and not just the sexuality. Um, maybe we'll, we'll save that for another, uh, another, another podcast episode, which we can gladly have you on. Oh, that'd be great. Um, thank you so much, Frida. Um, we'll put links to your website and to your tours. If anybody's ever in New York, uh, you give excellent tours of Williamsburg. Thank you. Uh, we'll put links to your sites and uh, all of them in the show notes. And um, as always, like I said, you can email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca to let us know what you thought. Frida Vizel, thank you for coming on Bonjour Hi. Now it's time in our podcast where we talk about our nachas of the week, that thing that made us feel good, feed us something Jewish, something Canadian, maybe something both, um, that sparked our interest over the past week. Alana, what's your nachas? Um, I had the pleasure of seeing Yid Life Crisis perform last night with their new show, A Closer Luke, at the Cote St. Luke Library. It was super fun. Uh, it was very hilarious to see people's reactions. They did uh, an homage to Cavendish Mall, and it was like an in memoriam of all the stores that used to be there. And the way that the crowd oh, the reacted gap. was the hilarious. Gap. There were a lot of older people, and people would clap. It was like, oh, oh, we remember Eaton's. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Um, that was fun. There was there was music. There was there was videos. They had like a whole intro with Mike Cohen from the Suburban. It was very local. A lot of the jokes were very insider. Um, and having not grown up in Cote St. Luke, uh, definitely some things flew over my head. But I did grow up going to the Cavendish Mall because uh, my grandparents always used to take us there. So I, I understood uh, a, a large majority of those. But it was all good good fun. For those of you who did not hear um, Alana's uh, interview with uh, Ellie and Jamie, um, because that was out only to our subscribers on the RSS feeds on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. So if you want, you can subscribe and pick it up uh, from last week's episode, which actually was there, um, but wasn't out on the CJN website. So that's a plug for people to go and sign up for the uh, for for your subscription, which is free. Just go on Apple, go Spotify, wherever you can get a podcast and click on subscribe for Bonjour Chai, because then you can hear a full unedited interview with Lana Zakon and the boy chicks from Yield Life Crisis. David, what's your knock? So we're going to be leaving the Cote St. Luke and we are going to be heading over to Argentina. Uh, it goes to the Amazon show, Yossi, the Regretful Spy. And basically, I don't know if you have watched this show, if you're aware of this show, but it's basically about uh, a man named Jose Perez who changed his name to Yossi when he converted in 1988. And he sent undercover by the Argentinian government to confirm the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory about Argentinian Jews planning to take over Patagonia. Uh, Yossi uh, would eventually come to believe that his reconnaissance for the government helped facilitate the unfortunate bombings that killed more than 100 Jews in Buenos Aires in the 1990s. Now, before the show, I'd never heard of this conspiracy theory, but it was called the uh, Ad uh, Adenia Plan, I believe. And it was, it was really believed by people deep in the Argentinian government and even still pops up to this day. Uh, the show takes place during the democratic era following Argentina's military dictatorship, during which political dissenters and innocent people, including a number of Jewish victims, were tortured and disappeared by the government. And it also includes some scenes later on after Yossi grows disillusioned with his intelligence work and is now on the run by the government. It feels like a Hollywood thriller. I'm having a great time watching it. I suggest you all and both of you check it out. Not only will I check it out because I saw uh, something about it and it seemed interesting, but I hadn't yet 
piqued my curiosity, it is the perfect segue for what I'm about to talk about. Um, so um, I've been doing a lot of life cycles lately. I had uh, three funerals last week. I had a wedding this week and another wedding next week. Um, one of the funerals that I did was for an Argentinian Jewish family. And last night I go to the Shiva and uh, to, to lead services. It's, uh, you know, part of what, you know, rabbis do. And uh, at the Shiva, somebody's telling me about this film that they saw a little while ago because it's Spanish and it's about a Shiva and it's called My Mexican Shiva. And they thought it was funny and it was mostly, uh, it's, it, he says, 80% Spanish, 20% Yiddish. So I get home last night and I'm like, I'm going to go look for this film. And I find it and there, it's not streaming anywhere. And I dig and I dig and I finally find it's on one of these channels where like, oh, you can get a seven day trial to like watch like for seven days and then they start charging you afterwards. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go check it out. Um, And then I click play. And first of all, no subtitles. So I don't know what's going on. So I can't (laughs) give an accurate representation of what this film is other than what I saw because I I did. I did sit through it. (laughs) Um, and then I noticed that it had a 43% rating on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Um, and I will... Uh, You're like, oh, so that's yeah. what they were talking about. I just thought the visuals looked my so Mexican nice. Shiva, um, what my Shiva, my favorite line from, the, from a Rotten Tomatoes review was from Elizabeth Weitzman of the New York Daily News, who says, who needs subtitles when you can speak the universal language of stereotypes? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... Okay. Um, but what I, uh, yeah, so it's basically clearly there's this well-meaning rabbi, that's what I can tell. And there's like the house staff in the, in the house where the shiv is going on and they don't know anything about Judaism and Judaism is just like descending on their house with a minion every morning and every evening. And they don't know about cutting meat with, or with the kosher knife and the cheese and all of that stuff. And the rabbi's there and he's trying to make everything work. And it's a comedy of errors. It's, I'm sure it seemed interesting. The Yiddish parts seemed funny. There was these two like angels and like calculating this guy's life throughout the Shiva in a big book. So that was like a thing. I was like, okay, all right. Um, so that that was there. Um, what I did think that was really, really um, magnificent um, and fascinating was at the very beginning, like over the title credits, I believe even, um, there was a depiction of a tahara, which is the the ritual bathing of the body before they go and bury the, bury the individual. Um, and it was fairly accurate, right, in terms of like, I don't know if they were, I highly doubt they were using an actual cadaver, but they, they show the, the actual bathing the way that they were actually, they were not, I know, I'm saying, but like they were actually bathing the body the way that one would bathe and they were covering the body the way that one would cover with the clothing, with the garments and pouring the, the buckets of water in the ritually prescribed manner. So it was a very interesting, if you've ever, I, I don't think I've ever seen a filmed depiction of a tahara, which what happens like, you know, before the actual burial. Um, if somebody is interested, that is a, a major point in the favor of my Mexican Shiva. You should um, you should leave a review on Rotten Tomatoes that you, you didn't understand a word, but you loved the Tahara. <laughs> okay. Anyways, so that is my um, that is my review of my Mexican Shiva. If you speak Spanish, um, maybe go check it out. Otherwise, maybe it's worth a pass. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the weekend of August 19th, Shabbat Parashat Ekev. Our producer is Zach Kaufman. Executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. 
We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a comment or rating on the platform of your choice. That helps us somewhat as well. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. 